Welcome back to the Stephen Perkins program, the only conservative podcast that is hipster approved. That's a real thing. This, of course, is the show where I talk to my friends in politics about culture, among other things. And on this week's episode, I'm talking with Bethany Bora. Bethany is a writer at both Outset Magazine and Independent Journal Review. And this week will provide an interesting contrast to last week's episode, which I'm sure you listened to with John Pierre Bailey, because unlike John Pierre, Bethany takes a different approach on the idea of of how conservatives, especially how Christians, should be influencing culture. I am also going to ask her about the oh-so-historic moment that we experienced last week when Hillary Clinton became the first female nominee of a major party, or presumptive nominee, I assume. Spoiler alert, Bethany could not really care less about that. So without further ado, enjoy this discussion with Bethany Bowen. Democratic nominee. Bernie Sanders thinks that he can catch up to her if he convinces some superdelegates to switch over. But the bigger story is that Hillary Clinton is now the first, um, the first candidate, the first official nominee of any party. And this, this is big history. She's the first one to ever be under uh, an FBI investigation. Uh, she's the first Democratic nominee to be a former college Republican chairperson <laughs> um she is you know the, the the first uh the first senator who represented wall street to now say that she's going to take down wall street uh and i suppose she's also the first woman so as a woman bethany does that matter to you is it is is this a big historic occasion um for anything other than the fact that she's the first female nominee of a party i don't think so you know, I went on Twitter last night and I was expecting like fireworks and massive excitement and all of these things because she's it's the first fe- like female nominee. It is a big deal historically, and there was like four people talking about it. Like no nobody actually cares that she's a woman. Well, how many Democrats people are- do you follow? I follow quite a few. <laughs> so do actually, you, do you think that it's just this sense of like, well, you know, our nominee isn't perfect, but the Republican nominee. Well, he's a, a nut job, and so we're gonna kind of be okay with with what we've been blessed with. <laughs> Ble- hashtag blessed. Hashtag blessed with. <laughs> no, I think that I think it's on both sides. I think both sides are looking at the other and saying, "Oh my gosh, I'm so glad that's not my nominee." So I, I, it's gonna come down to people are gonna vote for Trump because they hate Hillary, and they're gonna vote for Hillary because they hate Trump. I don't think that there's a very large segment of the population that actually likes either of these people so yeah i think that the excitement for hillary is just oh my gosh thank you for not being donald trump maybe your hair is actually real so we can vote for you and it's okay (laughs) do you think that a lot of people will stay home because i know a lot of people who i've talked to my age our age who have said you know it's just it's not there's nothing motivating me to go out and vote. And, I, and I've tried to make the case for them, well, you don't have to vote for president, but you can go out and vote for all the other positions that are up for election. But none of them seem to care about that. It's just like another election in which we don't really have that great choice. Um, do you think that people just stay home or are they gonna go out and reluctantly vote for the lesser of two evils? 
you know, I think people just stay home. And I think especially when it comes to younger voters, they don't usually go out and vote in the first place. So when you give them such sucky options as the two we've got, nothing is motivating them to actually get up and go vote. If you 2008 was like the kickoff for the millennial vote actually taking off and it was 20%, 22% of eligible 18 to 29 year olds actually voted. 22%, that's it. 2012 was 20%. And in and, 2008 you had a charismatic right. candidate like Barack Obama, you know, it, it, it regardless of your politics, there's no wonder why so many people went out to vote for Barack Obama. He's young, he was charismatic. Well, he's not so much young anymore, but he's he's charismatic. And now it's this year, it's like the two old liberals from New York. What do we do? Right. You you look at Obama and he had this excitement, this energy, and it was change we can believe in. It was something that they actually wanted to go vote for him. It wasn't just, hey, guys, John McCain's horrible. Come vote for me. Nobody even cared about McCain because they were so excited about Obama. This year, the pitch on both sides is, well, at least I'm not the other guy. Yeah. And one of, the other, one of the other things I find interesting about Hillary Clinton and her candidacy is we talked a couple of weeks ago, the theme on Outset was feminism. And um, mm-hmm. there was a piece about why we don't need a female president uh, just for the sake of having a, a female president. Um, there's, there's a piece about how modern day feminism is not the feminism that um, early feminists wanted it to be. The thing that is, is frustrating to me is Hillary plays the woman card like there's there's countless times that she has said that that you know don't vote for me because i'm a woman vote for me because of my virtues but one of my virtues is that i'm a woman mm-hmm. the, the thing that really bothered me is she was giving a speech and she said obviously i'm gonna put my husband in charge of the economy he's been there he knows how to do it he's the best at it so i'm gonna put him in charge of that to me that is the biggest um that is the biggest like betrayal to feminism to say I'm running as a woman for the most powerful office in the world and my husband's going to be in charge of one of the biggest parts of the presidency. <laughs> and, you know, either way you look at it, you can't really call her a self-made woman. Yeah, she, she's not. She was the first lady and that's how why people know her name. She built everything off that. But... You're right. When she's saying, I'm going to put my husband in charge of the economy, it's like, okay, that's like one third of your job. You just outsourced. So she's not actually taking responsibility for that. And I think it all comes back to the point of she doesn't actually have that much experience. She's had a lot of positions, but she doesn't have, here's my list of accomplishments that I can say, look, I did X, Y, and Z, and I actually know what I'm doing. And that it all comes back to that, the fact that that's why she plays the woman card so much. It's half of her deck is woman card. Yeah. There, there's nothing else there. Right. Um, I, I, but you can't, you, you really can't blame her for playing that card. If that's no, really all you have, you, you can't blame her. Um, but what's interesting about this, we talked about people staying home. I know whenever Donald Trump officially became the Republican nominee, um, there were a lot of young conservatives who said, uh, I'm done with the GOP. I, this man does not represent the party that I thought I joined. Um, and now a lot of Democrats are feeling similar ways with Hillary. I think more Democrats will reluctantly vote for Hillary than Republicans will reluctantly vote for Trump. But mm-hmm. the argument I made after Trump became the nominee is don't abandon the party necessarily. Don't abandon 
the, the political side of things. I think we just need to refocus. I think we need to go more local. I think we need to start building things within our own communities because a lot of people, uh, not just our age, but I think a lot of people in general, they kind of want these grandiose results and almost immediate results. And they don't understand the hard work that it takes at the, at the community local level. Um, but apart from just politics, I think that's also changing the culture. And specifically on college campuses, that's where you see a lot of liberal ideas um, taking root and becoming this this big movement. Um, uh, you know, a lot of the a lot of the most of the social issues are coming out of there, whether it's um, LGBTQ rights or the, the Black Lives Matter or things like that. They take root at the college level. And I know that you've had experience at the college level of kind of fighting back against some of that. But for people who don't really know where to start in terms of local activism and how to fight back on a biased college campus, where would you say that people should start? You know, I think that it's a lot simpler than we make it. I think politics is actually very simple at its core and we like to complicate it. But I think that the biggest thing on campus that you can do is just have relationships with people. And it sounds easy and it almost seems counterproductive to say, hey, you should go be friends with the college Democrats, but but it does something. And it does something for the atmosphere that you create on your campus. There, there Of course, there are going to be situations where you have to say, okay, now is not the time to make friends. Now is the time that we actually have to have a serious conversation. But most of the time, the issues that are had on college campuses can be resolved if there's a mutual respect there between both sides. Yeah. You know, at, at F- I go to FAU, at Florida Atlantic University, and there's no animosity between different political sides and different political opinions on that campus because everyone kind of just has accepted the fact that we're not going to agree, but we can all still be friends anyway. And it created a beautiful dialogue that we were able to have and say, we're going to bring Katie Pavlich in to talk about the Second Amendment, but then a couple weeks later, the college Democrats are going to host a forum on why campus carry is a bad idea and both sides go to each other's events and have the conversation and it's it's not scary and it it accomplishes much more than you would by trying to alienate the other side because in doing so you're alienating a majority of your classmates because most college students are liberal so if you try to bridge the gap instead of just trying to jump over it 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 makes your life a whole lot easier see i like that approach because i think a lot of people um, they, they look at the political climate in our country today and they, they see, well, there's, there's, we're not in, a, in an era where compromise is a, is a good thing. We're not in an era where you can really have a discussion with the other side. But I think a college campus is the perfect opportunity to do that. And that's why I think it's so important now more than ever for college campuses um, to, to make sure that their free speech codes or their speech codes um, are as free as they can. And I want to highlight an article that you wrote for Outset back in April about FAU, um, talking about how they took steps towards free speech. Can you give us an update on, first of all, some background on what that was and also an update on on what has transpired since then? Yeah, our student government, which represents 33,000 students that attend FAU, passed um, a resolution by a 91% approval margin that would make the entire campus a free speech zone instead of just having one little plot of grass 
like we have right now. There's one little plot of grass surrounded by palm trees because it's Florida, so we have to have them. It's a little plot of grass that we call the free speech lawn. And that's where your, de your designated free speech area, everything is supposed to happen there if it's quote-unquote controversial or could be deemed threatening or anything like that. So the resolution would make the entire campus, excluding buildings and athletic fields, a free speech zone. And it passed overwhelmingly in the student government. So we started taking it to classrooms. And we started going to our professors and saying, can we announce that this is happening and make sure people are aware of it? And 99% of the students that I spoke to, and I spoke to as many as I could, 99% of them thought we were already a free speech campus. Mm -hmm. like th this wasn't even something that they were aware, they weren't even aware that their freedom of speech was being restricted. So we went to the board of trustees and we got a meeting with the board of trustees and presented it to some of them and said, here's what we want to do, here's our petition that shows we have a lot of support on campus, this is what we're trying to accomplish, this is what we want to change. And we've gotten nothing but support from everyone in administration, everyone on the decision-making boards and different committees. So right now we're in a waiting period because different committees and different things don't meet until closer to the school year starting. But we've gotten nothing but positive feedback from my classmates all the way up to the higher-ups in the university. That's awesome. And, and, and I, I think that that's important because, like you said, a lot of people don't realize that there are restrictions in certain universities. I mean, mm -hmm. I go to one that is completely a free speech zone. And so that that's nice. Um, but there are a lot of colleges and universities where there are restrictions on that. Um, and, you know, as much as you can do with those in place to change the culture on campus, um, opening up those speech codes and making them more free certainly helps um, with the different projects and ideas that you're trying to, to spread out there. Yeah, for um, sure. So that's the college culture. Um, and, and one other argument I've made is that in, instead of focusing so much on politics, um, like I said, we go into culture. I think there should be more conservatives in academics because right now, conservatives are vastly underrepresented in academics. Um, and if you're a conservative professor, even if you are one, there's all sorts of pressures not to espouse your conservative beliefs in the classroom or even out of the classroom. Um, yeah. Would you agree that, that conservatives need to focus more on traditional liberal arts, academics, and, and things like that? Yeah, I think that that's one field that's kind of been left in the dust as far as conservatism goes, because... A lot of people just write it off like it's already gone. Like, oh, we lost that generation. It's over. College campuses belong to the left and let's just give up now. But they don't. And professors have so much influence over what students actually hear in college. So if, if we had more conservatives actually paying attention to that and paying attention to what's being taught and getting involved in that process by teaching and not being afraid to share that, um, I think it would make a huge difference. And I think that also has to come with support from the outside, outside of academia. There has to be support for those professors that do start voicing their opinions, because I think they already exist. I think a lot, of conservative, a lot of professors are conservative, but they hide those views because of the fear of pushback from their university. Yeah, I, I had a professor tell me, I'm in a summer course, and he told me at the beginning of the course, all right, I, I'm on social media, just a warning that what I say on social media will not, you know, go over into the classroom. It will not affect how I teach. Um, and I looked it up, and I won't give any details, but I looked it up, and he has somewhat conservative ideas. And I thought, how sad is that, that you have to have a disclaimer, I mean, in the syllabus that says, 
I'm active on social media, um, full disclosure, but you know, I, I won't let it affect what I teach and things like that. So, um, so I, I think that's an, this is an interesting age for universities and it's very similar to um, kind of the Vietnam era where there were a lot of protests on universities, um, luckily not as violent as that time, but um, yeah. I think equally as important. So that's college campuses and, and universities and academics. I wanna talk about culture in a more broad sense. You wrote um, back in March a review of the Passion Live television show that was on, I can't remember the network, um, but it was essentially uh, it was a t- essentially a Bible story set to a modern setting, um, set with modern characters and kind of this, this modern acting. And you had a few issues with it. Just so, a few. Just a few. So start off by talking a little bit about some of the issues that you had, not just with that specific show, but with... with um, with Christian stories and Christian themes that are adapted to popular culture in general? What are some of the issues that you usually see come up? Uh, I've done everything I can to forget about Passion Live, and you just made me <laughs> live it. I'm um, sorry. <laughs> no, I, I think the the biggest issue that I had with Passion Live, and it's an issue with that and overall in culture and how everything is portrayed, is that Christianity is molded and shaped to fit the society that we're living in now and the message of it is altered in that process. And that's where my issue comes in because the the Bible is not boring, you are boring. The, the, the gospel doesn't need to be altered or changed to be relevant, it remains relevant regardless of time and space. So if you have Christians who come out and say, yes, I agree with that, I believe that, but then they make something like Passion Live that portrayed Jesus like a tree-hugging hippie who ate at food trucks, it, there's something wrong with that because it's directly counterintuitive to everything that the Bible teaches about who Jesus was. So that that's my issue is we're molding it and we're shaping the gospel around the culture instead of just presenting it as is and saying, here's what it is. Our only purpose is to show you what it is. It's not to convince you that you should follow it. I want to play devil's advocate on this because John Pierre and I talked last week about how a lot of times um, Christian movies or Christian um, television or music or, or Christian arts in general can come off as cheesy. Um, it can come mm-hmm. off as cheaply produced, and that's because compared to Hollywood, it does not have as mu- the industry does not have as much money as right. as Hollywood does. Um, so, so what if someone like like if I play devil's advocate, I come up to you and I say, well, listen, first of all, we're trying to do the best with what we have. And we're trying to kind of get around all these challenges that we're having. And we're trying to make it not cheesy. We're trying to make it like true, but we also want to make it and I hate to use the word, I really do, but we're trying to make it hip and relevant, right? <laughs> what, 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 God forgive me. What would you say to that? I I would say that in Revelation, Jesus very clearly said he would rather you be hot or cold than be lukewarm. Hmm. Um, so if if you're gonna say you, you if you even if you have a good heart in it and say I want to present it the best way that I can, it's gonna need some minor tweaks, but I'll do the best I can. I would rather you just not do it at all because it would be better to not show anything than to portray an incorrect image 
of what you're trying to portray. When it's something as important as this, and it's as, something as important as faith and as presenting Christianity to a world that already hates it, you can't afford to mess it up, for lack of a better term. You can't afford to come out and say, well, this isn't exactly what the Bible says, but we're going to put it out there to convince you that you should like it and then come back and tell you that we kind of lied to you before and that's not actually what it is. Because people will find that out. People are going to look into it once their attention is caught and if they realize that they were lied to, they're not going to pay attention to it to begin with. So I, I think that you ha the hot or cold approach is specifically laid out as what we are supposed to do and that lukewarm approach, it just makes us look wishy-washy. Is there any legitimacy to the approach that says, um, okay, we're making a movie. It, it's not a, um, a blatantly Christian movie. Like it, it's not about a Bible story. It's not based on that. But we do want to insert some Christian undertones, um, some of the basic tenets of Christianity, of faith, of spirituality. Um, do you have any issue with, or in, in your view, would that be, watering it down or is that permissible do you think that that should what be is is what should be done or, or what do you think on that I, I actually think that's one of the most effective approaches that we have because i think that modern day christianity has somehow become very much like crossfit in, <laughs> in that in that when someone does crossfit you know oh, in, yeah. in like five minutes that they do crossfit and christians when they try to like over spiritualized things have kind of become like crossfitters in that like oh my gosh I, I get that you're a Christian but relax a little bit it's not it was never meant to be shoved down people's throats that was the, the whole point of it was to give you a choice well it, and, and it was meant to be done by actions and, and not right. so, so much words it should be example so I think if you talk about movies like that that have Christian undertones and that have um, a, a, like a theme that goes behind the scenes even almost and just it shows you the love that Christ showed that we're supposed to show without outright saying, hey, this is Christianity. Please love it. Here's why. If there's a way to do it that it doesn't seem like it's so in people's faces, in a lot of situations, that's a lot more effective in getting them to pay attention and in getting them to respond to it. Yeah. There is this, uh, there's this theory that, that culture, popular culture, kind of goes through these cyclical motions. And so... Um, you know, if, if you look at the 20th century, you see this because you had the roaring 20s and then you had a very much more mellow 30s and 40s. You had a more lively 50s, um, kind of the, the what they would call a sexual awakening in the 60s and 70s and liberal um, liberal social behaviors happened then. And then towards into the 80s with Reagan and the 90s with Clinton, you had, again, more mellow back to traditional values. Um, and even into the 2000s, I don't like talking about the early 2000s. It was a weird time. Like <laughs> Ashley Simpson was per making music. Um, what, do you, what do you think? First of all, do you agree with that, that it's cyclical? And if so, what would you characterize the time that we're living in now? Uh, how would you characterize our era? I think it is cyclical. I think that pretty much everything is cyclical to a certain extent. And I don't know exactly how this will be classified. I know there's a lot of people talking about sexual issues. Um, you look at the transgender, the North Carolina bill, and the different Supreme Court decisions that have happened. So I think that it, it's a mix between the 50s and 60s, I think. I think this is something that 
it's coming back around and people are kind of realizing like, oh, well, we want to talk about abortion again and let's talk about birth control and can I get it over the counter and who's going to pay for it? So, you know, like the 1950s and 60s is when you saw the birth control revolution, if you will, um, with Griswold v. Connecticut. So I think that that, that probably the early 60s, I would say, it's something that it seems like a lot of it is starting to repeat itself. Well, and what I'm interested in is after all these eras of uh, immense social activity and change, uh, you have a lot of, of, of things that are still standing today. Um, you have, for example, um, when you talk about abortion laws or you talk about um, uh, birth control and things like that, those are changes that happen in those areas that are still with us. And now, so what I'm trying to figure out or what I'm trying to dissect is what is going to stay with us from this era? Obviously, you touched on some of it. We have the transgendered bathroom rights. Um, which a lot of people are saying that it's end up, it's going to end up not being a big deal. Like we're going to look back on it and say, wow, that was dumb to fight about. Um, uh, religious freedom, religious rights, um, as well as just this whole myriad of social issues, right? And yeah. so w- what do you think in terms of culture is going to stay with us into the next era? Or is it too early to tell? What's your take on that? I think it's a little too early to tell because I think that we're still in the infancy stage of a lot of the revolutions that are happening. Um, But but I will say that I don't think that any of these things are insignificant in that they're not going to have any type of impact. Mm -hmm. I think that even if when you look at North Carolina and you see the, the bathroom fight that's happening there, even if we deem it no big deal and say that this doesn't matter and it's okay, let's just move on to the more important things like ISIS. Things like this do matter, and you can't just forsake the morality of a country and then expect economic success to follow it, because there, there are studies that prove that a decline in morality will, will, will precede a decline in your economy. So I think that this is, when you look at, it's a basic definition even of just biology in a lot of cases, and when you look at just the attitudes that people have, and if they're so nonchalant about this, then who's to say that the next thing won't get the same reaction? You know what I mean? You're, you're kind of desensitizing yourself to a lot of these things so that maybe they're no big deal in themselves, but they're leading to something bigger, and I think that's what a lot of people miss, is that nothing is just meaningless. Nothing is going to happen, especially in politics. Nothing is going to happen and just happen and then go away, and there's no effects of it. It's just completely gone. Un- undertones remain and these issues do have a greater effect than we realize in a lot of cases. Well, I think it is really important when you look at politics and conservatism as a movement is because um, the in my view, the conservative response to a lot of these issues, whether it is LGBT, transgendered rights, whether it is uh, um, whether it's immigration, whether it's all these big social issues, I feel like we're approaching it from the wrong angle and, and we're taking the wrong approach in the sense that we're not putting people first. And I'm a big believer that conservatism should be a movement of compassion and should be a movement of people first. Um, and I think that's how it's uniquely structured in the first place. So I think looking at how conservatives handle this, the era that we're currently in going into the future is going to be very telling of, of if there are any political shifts within the two sides, because liberals are no longer classical liberals. Conservatives um, are, are, are kind of fighting at both ends from a um, from like a like a, almost there's almost this authoritarian side 
um, to this classically liberal kind of libertarian side, and they're all battling each other. And I think how we react to these big issues is going to define us for generations to come. Um, and so one of the things I, I want to get your take on is how do conservatives approach these issues that are very heated, very contentious, and how do we get out without being the people who are on the wrong side of history? Well, I think that to go back to, to North Carolina, because it's a good example, I think, this is not purely a social issue the way that people have tried to make it even. This is a states' rights issue because North, the citizens of North Carolina support this bill and they support the governor who signed this bill. So when you have the federal government coming in and saying we're going to override a sta sovereign state's law, that that's a totally different ball game than just the social issue. So I think that's one way to look at it is it's not even just oh it's like social issues are like taboo. Like we're not allowed to talk about social issues because somebody might disagree with us and get their feelings hurt. But I think that even j with that a lot of it is the way that you approach it. And I think that's conservatism conservatism's biggest issue is that we just come out swinging right out of the gate and we just act like we're right and that's it and there's no discussing it. And maybe we are, but maybe we aren't. And it's worth having the conversation. And I think that's how you come out of it without looking like you're cold and heartless is actually listen to what the other side is saying. And if you still think you're right, then fine, more power to you. But listen to what people are saying and then continue your fight after that. Don't just storm over people as you try to advance your agenda. Don't leave people behind. Make sure you're listening to what they're actually saying about it. Do you think conservatives are, are too um, reactionary? Yes. Okay. I think conservatives have the attention span of a flea. <laughs> you're being so nice. I, I, I really, really do. Like, why were we talking about a gorilla? Oh, my gosh. Don't even get me started on the gorilla, Bethany. For I don't care week. about the gorilla. Exactly. But the gorilla happened, so everything on the earth was shut down. Because no, not everything was shut down. Know. Everything was centered around this growth. The gorilla became a thing about, like, yeah. like pro-life, you know, pro-choice. <laughs> it became about gun rights. It became about animal rights. It was like, the stop entire, the madness. The entire world was somehow represented in that gorilla's death, and everyone had to know it. Oh, my God. Like, I was just sitting back, and I was like, if I see what I will block anyone who talks about <laughs> this gorilla for one more second. But it's uh, things like that. We got distracted. We were talking about the bathroom bill. We were talking about ISIS. We were talking about the last leg of the primaries, and then all of a sudden, all of that went out the window because, oh, my gosh, there was a gorilla. Yeah. Do you think the Clinton campaign made that gorilla do it? Probably. Okay. I'm just putting yeah. that theory out there. I'm not saying I support <laughs> it. I'm just putting it out there. No, I think that the Clintons hired the people who shot the gorilla. <laughs> Perfect. Well, you know, they have their hand in everything. You know. It's incredible. Um, well, Bethy, I, I think you gave some really great insights. Um, and, and kind of the theme of, of this show over this summer is going to be about cultural change and how do conservatives not fight culture but influence it and i think you've given some really good answers so thanks for coming on but if people wanted to keep up with you to find your writings to hear your voice all of that where can they go the best way to do it is twitter mm -hmm. um i'm on twitter all the time so it's just at bethany bora um, I write for Outset. I write for IJ Review. So my stuff's always popping around there. But Twitter is usually the best way to find it because everything's all concentrated in one place. Cool. And as always, I recommend that you follow Bethany and that you read her writings um, because she 
You know, she she knows what we need to hear. Not only what not only what we need to hear, um, but I, I think Bethany, you 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 have a very and I told you this earlier. You have like a, a talent that is is not normal for someone our age, and that's not a bad thing. Of course, it's a very good thing. So I appreciate it. Yeah, keep on keeping on. Thanks so much for coming on the show. Anytime, thank you. Thank you to Bethany for coming on the show this week. Make sure to catch next week's show as well as last week's show with John Peer. Get all caught up there. In the meantime, you can find me on Twitter at Stephen underscore Perkins at Facebook.com slash Stephen Perkins and on OutsetMagazine.com along with some other really great young conservative writers and podcasters. Congratulations, really, to Hillary for becoming the first nominee under FBI investigation. It is not only historic, but as she said, it is shattering that glass ceiling. Thanks for listening. Have a great week.